You're listening to And hey everyone, welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. It's Saturday, June the 13th, 2020. My name is Marvin Yue, and joining me today to talk about all the good pop during these uh these bad times are our favorite self-proclaimed professional Asian American just Jew. Hey Marvin. Hey Jess. I'm just I'm just very tired as a professional Asian American, but we'll talk about that I'm <laughs> sure in this podcast. Lots of learning to do. And also culture editor Han Wen. Hey, hey. Hey. I am also tired. Oh, it's, I mean, we all thought May was over and we'd be able to relax. And then June came and said, you know what? Nah. Nah. You know what? But this is, a, I guess, a tired that hopefully means better things. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, yes, it's, it's, a, it's tired for the right, hopefully for the right reasons and that you are doing the work and doing a lot of self-examining and maybe putting some positive change out into the world. So, I mean, it's, I don't want to call it, yeah, it's obviously a tough time, but to say it's a bad time almost sounds wrong because this was the default for many, you know, black people in the United States and the rest of the world for a very long time. And we are now just kind of understanding on a deeper level what that truly means. So, you know, I'm hopeful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for our listeners, um, our loyal listeners who were wondering where we went last week. All uh, three of you. <laughs> there's at least 20. I feel Thanks, like Mom. there's like 20 of you. Oh, oh hey, guys. <laughs> all right. Um, we decided to take last week off because um, a we were all just we were all caught up in the moment of like feeling like this was a very like historic moment for in our lifetimes in terms of like what's going on in the world during the, the protests that arose um, as a result of the murder of George Floyd, um, which has been simmering since the murder of Armand Aubrey and also Breonna Taylor. And like over the last almost eight years going all the way back to Trayvon Martin, even going back before then, because this has been a problem that's been simmering for, like 400 plus years in this country, right? And I think there's a combination of a lot of us being at home now with more time to think and to reflect and to really act. Um, something about this this flare-up seems different, right? Because of so many reasons. I do think it was a perfect storm of of, you know, really high unemployment. So people are able to kind of follow a little more, have the time to go out and protest and take action as well as there's nothing open right now. So there's nothing to distract us. And I will be the first to admit that, you know, in the past when these murders happen, I would feel sad and I would be like, Oh, that's really bad, but I have a job to get back to, or I have to do this, or I have these plans going on and it would just kind of fall out of my consciousness or like, you know, my active consciousness. So I, between that and I think this is also a reaction to this ever-increasing creeping line towards fascism, you know, and just globally a creeping line towards like the right of, you know. So hopefully this is the very needed pushback. Yeah, I mean, some might even see this as like 
a result of the class divides that's been happening in the U.S. for the last like the last hundred years, which in the American context has a lot to do with race as well, because class and race are so entwined in the way that America operates. Right. Even coming oh, down yeah. to like the establishment of the police department and things like that. So it's definitely it's it's weird. Right. Because like just was it God like four months ago, we were all like praising Parasite for teaching us about class divides and like and like the harm it does to people in poverty. And now we're at our own reckoning in our own country um, of our own flavor of like what Parasite was about. Yeah, the, the, basically 2020 is that entire last scene in Parasite at the birthday <laughs> party. And I've seen memes like that. Um, but again, very necessary crazy birthday party and i'm hoping the thing that gets stabbed and dies is like injustice and <laughs> racism and you know like fascist authoritarianism like those are all things i would very gladly stab in the middle of a child's birthday party <laughs> and i think this metaphor is now getting away from me <laughs> yeah i mean it's definitely we've definitely all had too much time to think about not only what's happening but what our role in what we do and what we what we want to do in, in this time. I know I know Jess, you've been out to a protest. Um, I've been, you know, I'm high risk, so I've been kind of staying at home trying to do the best I can to do what I can at home. And I know people are like calling their representatives and everyone's fighting in their own way. And I think this is a <clears throat> an extension of like the conversations we had back in 2016 where it's like it's really up to us to create a new world that we want to live in that we that we want to see and more people are realizing that's not the same world that some other people want and so we're at this like crossroads of like what are we going to become and i um, mean this definitely seems like a lot of people's you know inciting incident act one of whatever your favorite ip is right this is the call to action and i think some people really have to kind of sit there and contemplate whether or not you are going to be the hero or you're going to no, you know, join the empire. You know, I, I love star Wars. And I, I think you love star Wars as well. Marvin Han, I don't know how big of a fan you are, but like, you know, my star email Wars. is Han Solo, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Fun pun. I mean, I mean, you know, like, so like we are all obviously like big star Wars fans and, I think when we watch those things, we always see ourselves on the side of the rebellion or the resistance. And, you know, we want to think we would have been in those trenches with Luke and Han and Leia. But like when it comes, you know, it's happening now. And I think there's some people who I'm starting to realize will be like, man, you would have just you would have sold me out. You would have <laughs> sold me out to uh, on the in the cantina for that paycheck. You would have joined the Empire. Would have yeah. been, been a stormtrooper. You totally would have been a space oh. fascist. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to see who uh, touts themselves, especially like you know in fandom, especially like some of those fandom is has been such a strong like center of identity politics. I think for you know for certain people, like you, you are the Star Wars guy. You are the Oh God! Don't even get me started on Harry Potter. I'm still reconciling oh, with that. I read a really but good I, tweet I today saying that how wild is it that in 2020 
liberals and conservatives traded Harry Potter for NASCAR. Right? Wild. <laughs> I mean, I, I donated like a certain amount of money times seven for all the money. I have spent a lot of money on Harry Potter. Like, I think that's what's like pissing me off. Like, I have probably contributed to a certain portion, however minuscule, of uh, she who shall not be named's wealth. <laughs> And now I'm just like, damn it. Like now I, I own all. The, I mean, I, I, I mean, have all this stuff already. The money spent. Your identity has like, been tied to this four class system for like your most of your adult life. Right. I I mean, <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Like ever, I have. I literally am writing with a pen with that. house on it. And now I'm just like, OK, well, I don't know quite yet what to do with those because I do think those stories have taught me so much. And we're so formative in my, ironically, so formative in my, um, you know, development as a young person and my world of the view and what is right and what is wrong. Um, so obviously, it's very disheartening to hear this terrible shit come out of, <laughs> you know, her mouth. Um, so, yeah, still trying to decide what to do. Obviously, I'm trying very actively. I'm not going to give her more money. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and like my first step is like, at least try to, you know, support some uh, trans black trans organizations you know whose very basic you know very basic survival is often threatened so donate guys if you can <laughs> i know how much i know how much a, a ticket to that theme park to go visit that world is and i know how much i've spent on movies and sweaters and books and a magical wand times two you know one that weight one that has a remote thing in it one that does it's just a lot it's a lot <laughs> so yeah i guess i just have to be like just you now Ugh. <laughs> well You're not ever just just you oh thank you huh? thanks thanks <laughs> professional asian just you oh i don't even know if i need i can't handle that mantle right now <laughs> i mean well we're gonna talk more about media's portrayal of rebellion revolution and protests um later on in our feature segment but but for now, I want to know what's been getting y'all through this um, this time because I know we can't be um, engaged all the time. It's really important to take breaks and catch some good pops. So, um, Jess, what's been popping? Uh, well, my usual standby shows are no longer valid or giving me the same joy. So I started a new comedy show. I don't know if we've talked about this on this show, but what we do in the shadows <laughs> on FX, it is great um so simultaneous and and if you're familiar with flight of the concords which was jermaine clement who's a co i guess co-creator of the show along with taika waititi it's based off the movie that they made it's about three vampires who live on staten island it's in a mockumentary format and they have their familiar which is like their human sermon named guillermo and like just kind of like shenanigans like roommate shenanigans but like through the lens of being staten island vampires <laughs> and it is simultaneously so dumb and so smart at the same time and it's just hilarious this show actually makes me laugh out loud like in real life um it's it's just a weird mix of like, I don't know what it is. I, I, I cannot pinpoint. I think it's really the delivery. I think the actors, I think in lesser hands, mm -hmm. the dialogue would come off really stupid. But the three, four main actors are so funny. <laughs> um, you know, like Laszlo, who is 
one of the uh one of the vampires he's kind of like this very like lothario like there's a lot of like sexual like energy between all of them you know they they're like x hundred years old so things like gender roles or like sexuality like doesn't really matter to them they'll sleep with anybody they kill a lot of people um so it's like really funny to have this like grand timeline of like where like the minuscule things don't really matter but at the same time it is very much a show about the minuscule things <laughs> like being roommates oh there's also craig the energy vampire we cannot forget him he's a day walker he's basically that guy in the office that bores you and sucks your energy with small talk and that interchange between him and vanessa bayer's character who plays a emotional vampire who sucks your energy from pity was <laughs> probably the funniest thing i've seen on tv this year and that was the first time i was able to laugh since all the protests and the kind of highlighting of like the black lives matter movement started so i'm very grateful for it that's amazing i've only seen the movie but han you you covered this, right? You covered the show? Yeah, I have. And um, Jess is pretty much just spot on for everything there. And the other thing I love about it is that because it makes you laugh because it's actually full of joy. Um, it's something where, like, it, it, I think it's very tied into, like, making the most of the moment in life and stuff like that without it being very cheesy, um, as that sounds. But uh yeah, it, it's 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 something where like we are people who are mortal and they are immortal, and yet at the same time they're like certain things that we have in common in that like trying to you know make the best. But uh, yeah, it's just so smart, and I love the writers on it. Stephanie Robinson is a particular favorite of mine. Uh, uh, she came from um, Atlanta as far as the TV show that is, um, and it's got her start there and um, is one of the main writers on this executive producers. Um, she's like super young too. I think she's like 26, which is like yes. very offensive to me. me <laughs> she makes me mad and yet proud of her at the same time. Um, yes. And uh, I believe she was even supposed to have been doing the, I think it was a Deadpool. I think it was the Deadpool uh, animated show that got killed or is nowhere i don't know whatever it is it's like it was not happening um but yeah it's uh it's just such a good show and it's and i'm so very, funny and i'm very happy actually that the timing of uh fx on hulu happened during the pandemic so that people can actually be aware of all of these amazing fx shows that haven't really gotten as much play um, on FX itself. And so like, let's say things like Mrs. America might not have done as well if it weren't also on Hulu. Cool. Um, but yeah, and I'm hoping like other things are getting like a second life. Um, what we do in the shadows is the perfect show. And uh, I think one of my colleagues even wrote something about how it was sort of like, you know how at the beginning of this, we were doing like pick your quarantine house and who the your favorite like <laughs> four people would be and they did it for directors and movies and they did it for like politicians but then she made an argument like this was the perfect quarantine house and I have to kind of agree <laughs> yeah I think you'd really like it Marvin there's also a lot of good like world building I mean granted it's a fictional world of like this <laughs> there's a vampire culture uh -huh. which every time I learn more about it like some situations in it uh, some some storylines need a <laughs> kind of background of what the vampire cultural context is and it's just so 
funny. Well, that was what was so great about the movie. Um, Taika Waititi actually also stars in it, and it takes place in like Wellington, New Zealand, and. It was really cool to see like them build out that world because they have like vampire society and their rivalry with like the local werewolf pack. Yeah, and a lot of that comes back into the series. And oh my god, there's this one segment with the vampire council that you're gonna love. <laughs> it's just great. I won't spoil it for you, but it's just so it's I, great. I, it's funny, and then I think it the guest stars are really great as well. Uh, I would and, also say yeah. I love puns and they do not disappoint on the show when it comes to puns. And um, I've always argued that shows that do puns well are very are, are very smart. So, you know, there you go. It's hard to do puns well. It's real right. hard. <laughs> right. Otherwise, you fall into dad puns. And there's an art even to dad puns where they're like, you know, it's dumb. But you made it deliberately dumb and you, you almost elicit a visceral reaction from people um, when you do them. So, yeah, it's, it, they're very aware of what they're doing. They're very smart. Yeah, it, it's it's a little mix of everything you want. It's a very diversified like forms of comedy. You have everything from like physical humor to you know puns to gross out humor to like kind of crude sexual humor, but also very like touching the the relationships and. Uh, like historical things as well because you know they're all like from like these ancient kingdoms that are no longer in existence um <laughs> and i mean there's this one great episode where he like gets a 23 of me test and he realizes he has like 250,000 descendants <laughs> uh it's just all great it's all great amazing it's on my to watch list as is uh, mrs america as is like a ton of other stuff uh need to find time <laughs> Han, what's popping with you? All right. So since I've finished every single version of the circle possible <laughs> um, and I need more, uh, I was like, you know what? I keep saying that I've been wanting to catch up on uh, escapist rom-com novels. So I finally, the library finally got, you know, through my holds and um, I got red, white and royal blue, uh, which I think Jess, you also recommended. Is that right? I have not read it. I've heard really uh, good things about yes. it. And I love me a I love I'm like, I know this is not cool to say. And like, mm -hmm. I understand it's problematic, but I love me like a royal love story. <laughs> well, you know? there there are two twists here, which I like. Uh, one, it is a queer love story. Um, and number two, it's not just a royal with like, let's say a commoner, which is the typical thing that you see, but it's, it's a royal and a, uh, first, um, offspring of the United States. So they are actually kind of on the same level in, in a way, like, you know, uh, offspring to the heads of state in, of their respective countries. Um, and the, uh, I guess it's not much of a spoiler, but like the first son of the United States is also half, uh, Latinx. So, uh, there's some stuff there and also the son of the president who is a woman. So like there are, there's some good stuff going on there and, um, and very obviously not just queer friendly, but like everything else friendly. Um, and, uh, so this kind of is, is sort of 
uh, dovetailing with my other thing that I've been trying to watch, which is screeners of Dating Around, which is the new season of Dating Around. Well, which before is on we Netflix. get to that, I have a question yeah. that I know everyone who's yes. looking at this book is looking for. How steamy is it? <laughs> First yeah, of all, it's like the sex scene <laughs> per page ratio. First of all, I'm not that far in. I finally got to the first kiss. It was very, mm. is very sweet. Um, it was that was kind of steamy. There was tongue, um, but I don't know <laughs> how far it gets. We'll, we'll see. I, I'm hot, in- hot. We're millennials, okay? Like having sex is like first base. Like eating, <laughs> eating out in public for like dinner is like third base. You got to You got. You got to <laughs> pick it up. You got to pick it up. Well, the deal is this also because you know they they have security around with them and they're in different countries, mm. but. Uh, I also have to say that there's a reason why maybe a lot of these books are called kissing books um, that versus, let's say, rom- romance novels, because they're not romance novels are like bodice rippers. Right. <laughs> they're they're the ones that are going to have definitely some like hardcore sex, many sex scenes. And it's it's like about that, whereas uh, kissing books may have sex, but it definitely is heavy on the so the sighing, the romance and building up and uh, getting all the emotions around it. So I, I don't know where this will end up. Um, we shall see. <laughs> but uh, so far, I'm enjoying it. I will say um, I didn't realize how detailed writing about kissing could be until I read a romance novel. Oh, these are are very important tips. (laughs) (laughs) I got another important tip for you. (laughs) But yes, (laughs) so it's all about evoking the feeling, I guess. So Mm, if you just say they kissed and it was great, then it's kind of like, but I always have to admire someone who's very in touch with that as, as far as writing that. And not maybe they're blushing the whole time. Who knows? But uh, what what was that? What was that movie I saw where the where Allison Janney plays someone who's writing a romance novel? Um, she's a principal of a of a school. Oh, Ten Things I Hate About You. Dude. Yes, yes, yes. And so, like, she was like, oh, thinking of like engorged and finding all the uh, the 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 source words. Yeah. For, yeah, you cannot use the word actual word like penis when you're writing a romance <laughs> novel. It's not sexy. It's member. like oh, it's like member or like his his. He, something like it. the word throbbing. <laughs> yeah, throbbing throbbing is. A word used a lot. I read a lot of like trashy romance. Oh, yes. Oh, I've read those too. So, yeah, yeah. Um, So it's for me, I find like both satisfying. It just depends on what your mood is. Um, But I think I think the way that this is illustrated on the front cover kind of gives you an idea that even if there is going to be sex in it, it's still on the lighter side. um, So it's not one of those covers that are all abs. Right, right, right. It is not a Fabio cover. You also, also, I think I, I don't have any like hard data on this, but I have a theory that the ab heavy ones are a little more like crass. Um, if you have the woman on the cover and just the woman, it's a little more centered on hmm. like, her internal thought. The, the ones that have tend to have like the naked man, half man is it's 
because because I I like my trashy romance novels, but they like, can't be mm-hmm. like too trashy or else I'm, I'm like at the end of the day I'm like still a little too feminist to like <laughs> yeah yeah like if she has to want to be ravaged like she can't yeah. be like actually, actually ravaged because that's yeah. just rape and sexual assault yep but like you know she actually has to want to be ravaged so there, there's a line <laughs> yeah there's a line and so I've I found a little more uh, success with like the covers with just the women on them. Um, and then if if you're into like the heterosexual romance historical novels, obviously, um, and then and then but there is definitely a different aesthetic for like kind of the more romantic books, the uh, romantic yeah. romance books. And and even when you talk about, let's say, mm-hmm. Helen Huang's books um, that have definitely some sex in them and they're pretty hot and heavy sex, they're still maybe not quite the same as those bodice rippers. Mm. So um yeah, so we'll see where this goes because they're also there. There are both of age, but they're still young, so I don't see them going too far as far as like graphically um, describing things. Because I think the protagonist is eighteen, so mm. yeah, that would be. It'll happen in the Netflix series. Don't worry. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, the the kissing booth was pretty uh, up there when it came to a teen you know, uh, sex movie. So anyway, it's also terrible. Um, Sorry. (laughs) No, I completely agree, but that didn't stop it from being popular. Um, but anyway, well, I was searching through Netflix earlier this week to look for something to watch. And I noticed that they have, um, death of Stalin, um, available, uh, which is the Armando Inucci film that premiered a couple years ago at Sundance. And if you're familiar with Inucci's work, um, he's the guy behind um, shows like Veep and In the Loop. He's known for his um, comedic political satires, right? Um, so Death of Stalin follows the same type of format, um, starring Jeffrey Tambor, Steve Ushimi, Michael Palin, and others as Stalin's inner circle. Um, and the power struggle that happens uh, when Stalin passes away during Soviet Russia. Jason Isaacs is in it as well as uh, Field Marshal Zhukov, who's, uh, who might be my favorite character in the movie. Uh, he plays the leader of the Soviet army and uh, his entrance is probably the best scene in the entire movie. I'd watched the first half of the movie before um, when I was on the plane and never got around to finishing it. So um, I was pretty excited to give it another go. And overall, it's a really fun movie. Uh, it's Inuchi's usual style of skewering petty bureaucrats in a corrupt system. But watching the first 10 minutes again um, hit me a little bit differently this time, um, especially in this today's day and age. Um, the first scenes of the movie takes place during one of uh, Stalin's nightly raids where his secret police goes out and arrests, detains and executes um, people that he deems enemies of the state. And just something about watching this scene of a brutal um, authoritarian police state um, while people are on the streets trying to keep our country from becoming an authoritarian police state. It uh, the satire hits too close. Yeah, it, it hits a little differently. Um, have any of you watched this movie yet? I have not, um, but I do like Inucci. I mean, he's also done that his most recent, like whatever that thing is set in space with, Hugh Laurie in it. Yeah, um, Avenue 5. I heard that. Avenue, I haven't yeah. watched it yet. I, I feel like I heard it didn't do as well as it did. it's 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 a little inconsistent, I believe, mm. but I like the concept of kind of creating this uh society on board ship because they it was meant to be a cruise ship, but you know, kind of like with Gilligan's Island, it it ended up being longer mm. <laughs> than expected. And so uh, they they have to create a society and figure out like 
oh, well, if there's an idiot in charge, what happens? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a nice thought experiment and there are some decent jokes, but, you know, not maybe inconsistent. Um, but, yeah, yeah Yanuchi is very smart in yeah. that regard. And I really enjoyed Veep and um, Inuchi's oh, take yes. on the American political system. Um, he did a really good job uh, portraying these politicians or taking the flaws of people who would go into American politics and like just turn them up to 11. I don't know if either of you caught the end of the series, but that series actually ends on a pretty dark note in terms of how it views the American political system and what you need to do to uh, succeed in it. Speaking of Inuchi, um, I'm really excited about his um, latest project, which I don't know if um, the release date's been announced yet, but uh, it's the personal history of David Ah. Copperfield. One with Dev Patel, yeah, with Dev uh-huh. Patel as David uh-huh. Copperfield, um, and like and like a star-studded cast of British actors. Um, a lot of them are Nucci's favorites. Um, you have um, who's that? He played the 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 old Doctor, Christopher Eccleston, no, David Tennant, no, the most recent one before this iteration. Oh, oh uh, uh, Capaldi, yeah, yeah, Peter Capaldi oh. uh, is in it. Um, Hugh Laurie is in it. Um, Tilda Swinton's in it. Um, Gwendolyn Christie. Yeah. Yeah, she's in it. Um, I actually caught the film at TIFF last year, and it was a lot of fun. Um, what? Wow. Uh, flex. <laughs> I, I, I'm so, I mean, look, here's the thing. And, and you're probably with me on this. If I hadn't made my love of, like, British period pieces clear, especially, like, of the Jane Austen variety, um, yes, yes. And, of course, it's always been kind of a a tough thing for me to always support because, you know, it's usually exclusively white actors. Um, and so this is why when, like, as soon as I saw him in that little, like, stuffy jacket and cravat, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that's hot. So I'm so excited to see this. Um, but, yeah, when is it coming out? I actually don't know. Um, we want it. Yeah. That's what the people want. Um, but... It's definitely it's definitely a departure because it's not as cynical as um, Inuchi's usual thing. It's actually quite hopeful, um, but it's definitely one of those like it, it takes the Hamilton school of like let's just cast whoever in all the roles, and it works out really really well. Um, I'm sure some people will be mad about it, but you know, screw them. Um, <laughs> I will bring up this point later because we we're, we're going to talk about something like this. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so Death of Stalin is now available on Netflix, um, and that's what I watched uh, for fun. That's what you watch for fun, Marvin? Yeah, well, it is fun. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I think I'll check it out. If you like Inuchi stuff, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, but yeah, that's what's popping. And when we come back from the break, uh, we'll talk all about our experiences with protests and civil rights in the media. We're still here, and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.
And welcome back to Good Pop. For this episode, we're going to be taking a look at our experiences with uh, civil rights, uh, race, and protests in terms of their depictions in media. I know that, um, at least in my experience, um, a lot of the media growing up about racism and civil rights were framed around the racial tensions of black people and white people um, throughout American history. And so I feel like a lot of us learned about um, the problem of racism through this lens. Um, I'm curious if either of you remember what was the first piece of media that um, got you thinking about things like race and equality. Yeah, I... Okay, so I grew up in a place where I was part of the predominant ethnic group. Uh, you know, the San Gabriel Valley. It's very Asian. It's very Chinese specifically. So, like, I didn't really grow up with white or black classmates. It was predominantly Asian, um, you know, predominantly children of immigrants, um, Asian or Latinx, including, and then, for the most case, um, everyone was like either ch children of immigrants or not too far removed. So, I mean, if we're, we're, when talking about race and being made aware of it, um, I think the first thing I kind of remember thinking was, um, and I know Han, you also are, have brought this up, but um, the Whitney Houston produced version of Cinderella that was on TV. It was a TV made movie. And Brandy, uh, the singer Brandy, played Cinderella. It was a kind of essentially a colorblind cast or color conscious casting. Had Bernadette Peters, who's a white woman, playing the stepmother, the stepdaughters. Uh, one actress was black, one actress was white. Paolo Montalban, who is still to this day the idea of my Prince Charming, <laughs> was you know Filipino, and his parents were played by Whoopi Goldberg and Victor Garber. So it was like this very like consciously. Uh, and Jason Alexander was in there, too, for some reason. I mean, he did great in it, but still. <laughs> so just seeing that those portrayals of family and this is one of those VHS tapes that just like always existed in my house. I don't really remember a time not having seen it, if that makes, you know, I think there's just some properties that you kind of inherit um, growing up. You don't remember ever rem you don't remember a time you didn't know it. So that's but, you know, it wasn't really about race. Um, and but definitely kind of like I kind of at that point realized that's not really normal and that's not how you do it. But also how nice it is that everyone's just kind of chill about it. And then for me, like more explicit, like race thing, still another TV movie, because I don't think Asian American, I don't think Asian immigrant parents particularly think to take their young children to go watch movies about protest or civil rights, unfortunately. Um, but it was The Color of Friendship, which was another TV movie that was set in 1977. And it dealt with kind of the American civil rights and uh, South African apartheid through these two girls who one black, one white, who kind of meet and become friends through this exchange program, which allegedly is based on real life. But also, like, you know, it's the Disney version of events. I don't think I ever watched that. It was a TV movie. You I said? did not. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I think it means a certain age. They played it on Disney a lot. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> Disney always. Uh, I do have to say the Disney movies were often pretty good about being as diverse as they could be for their time, um, and they try. They definitely do try. 
And, you know, I did some research and it was written by a black screenwriter and directed by a black director, which is actually seems for 2000. More unlike, it seems <laughs> unlikely. It's less likely to happen now, I feel, actually. Mm. Um, so I think they're trying. I mean, in in a way that it's still very disney and very sanitizing. Obviously, there's some problematic tones of like black people can be racist, too. And why can't we all get along, you know, instead of really. And it does portray America as kind of being in a better place <laughs> in the 70s uh, compared to apartheid South Africa, which may yeah. or may not be true, depending right. on your experience. And, right. you know, the I part- was not alive then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like that was, you know, American exceptionalism is like is a hell of a drug, right? Like thinking that we're <laughs> better at other places. Um, thinking back, like I don't know exactly when was the first time I learned that like racism exists and is bad. But I remember that was what, like, you know, like growing up, you watch movies like Remember the Titans or, you know, in school you read To Kill a Mockingbird, which has its own issues with um, using the uh, trauma of a falsely accused black man to teach the white protagonists a lesson. Um, But at least when I was growing up in a town, much like Jess's, uh, where um, we were mostly... 40% 40% Asian, 40% Latinx, and 20% everything else. These stories were our main exposure to um, the issues of race and racism. Yeah, definitely. These movies are teaching us these kind of popular movies that filter into the mainstream. So we're talking about movies that you don't have to actively seek out, right? Like things that just come across your table because they're really, really popular. They're playing on mainstream channels like Disney or they're something that your school is showing you. I feel like every single school has like a VHS tape of a Kevin Costner movie <laughs> on deck that they roll out and like it's a, they can't find a sub in time and, you know, or like they just need something to fill the time out, which, oh, my God, Kevin Costner is like the grandfather of white savior movies, right? <laughs> the godfather of white savior movies. Oh, God, yes. But they're always set in the past. They're always set, you know, like this happened before. And yes, we are all equal human beings, but they're never really diving into, you know, the, again, the systemic causes of these things. You know? like, and then I don't and that's not enough to counteract kind of all the wrong information we are given as Americans going through an American public school system, going through all these institutions, like, like one good movie or one even like truthful movie is not enough to like unteach you all the wrong things you were taught. <laughs> well, I mean, we were all taught like Martin Luther King and his speech, but we weren't taught about uh, Malcolm X. Yeah. <laughs> they don't teach you about Malcolm X or the Black Panthers in kindergarten. <laughs> they teach you Martin Luther King and I have a dream and Every, you know, kindergartner, first grade class, or, or I don't know what grade it is, but definitely elementary school, everyone like has to learn the speech and memorize it. And you might do a recital where you say it line by line and they don't do not give you any of the context. <laughs> and like the pictures they show you are all like Martin Luther King walking arm in arm across that bridge in Selma. But they don't show you like what happened like 10 minutes later when they're being beat by police officers. The police. Right? I will say, at least in Color of Friendship, they do talk about, so the the white South African girl, her name is Marnie or Mari. Mari's dad is a South African police officer. And there's a point in the movie where Stephen Biko, who is a very, uh, was a very prominent, um, you know, like African nationalist, a leader, black leader in South Africa gets like arrested. And, you know, we eventually learned that 
we know eventually that he basically gets beaten to death but in police custody which <laughs> you know sounds very familiar it's something we've all really have heard a lot of in the last few months and so i was like wow this is a kids movie and i i do admire them for kind of going there but again that's in south africa right it's not in america that's yeah south africa and america's beyond that which obviously we are not and i feel like we can dedicate a whole other episode we probably will about the portrayal of like cops and law enforcement in media because that that deserves its own like half hour discussion about how that's affected our our perception of what what law enforcement does in, in our country yeah but how about you guys i know you guys are slightly older so i might have <laughs> ha, i'm way older <laughs> yeah i have different um touchstones i think from for me, there's probably two two things, and I will get to Cinderella at some point, but uh, two things that kind of shaped my childhood, which is one is that I, my parents, I think with the exception of uh, the killing fields, said that basically let us rent anything we wanted. So um, we kind of burned through the video store and like, went through a whole phase where we're um, sort of renting a lot of the uh, not quite black exploitation films, but there are some comedies of the eighties and then also uh, of the nineties that were on constant rotation at home. Um, I'm sure I don't want to say we burned some like or not, but you <laughs> know uh, and so among those were like, okay, so do the right thing. I do remember watching, but at the same time, that was a little bit hard for me to watch uh that wasn't our usual fare it was a little bit more violent and like yelly than i was used to Mm. um but i definitely know i was just like huh that's a different thing but what we probably watch more often in my family were things like hollywood shuffle um boomerang uh not just eddie murphy things but like uh hollywood shuffle crooklyn so a lot of things that actually did kind of talk about race more um that I, I didn't quite understand, but I just sort of accepted that, that that's what I was going to get. Um, and those were good films. I remember watching them fairly often. I, I don't know if I understood them necessarily. Um, they weren't as obvious as, let's say, uh, I. so number two, I did go through my old Hollywood phase where I was like watching stuff on TV like that I could get my hands on. And so guess who's coming to dinner mm. was one of those where that's definitely sort of cringeworthy now when you watch it. It's not necessarily wrong, but definitely that was like groundbreaking movie for the time where it's, I think Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy played the older parents of this girl who brings home um, Sidney Poitier as her date. Yeah. I can't remember. Um, and so that was a big deal. But then also <laughs> the, uh, the remake of imitation of life where um this these two girls grow up as like best friends and sort of sisters but like one of them is the daughter of the black um, maid and she's somewhat white passing and so that becomes a whole thing when they grow up um later and there's still that tension in that household and um so i remember thinking that was like I don't know why I was kind of obsessed with that film. That's when I realized that certain melodrama I could get down with. Um, and um, But then the first time I actually thought about it as far as conversation was Cinderella. Because I remember a friend of mine 
who is now a conservative judge uh, in Texas. Uh, oh, joy. Yes. Who I remember her telling me, she's like, God, like, why do I have to do an all black version of Cinderella? And I was like, oh. Yeah. And I remember just I didn't have the vocabulary at the time to kind of respond to her in a very educated way. I just remember saying, well, first of all, not everyone's black in there. And then also I kind of paused and I was like, so would you care if it was an all Asian version? And I just kind of was just like I was just kind of trying to figure out like what her line was and what was going on there. But it kind of got dropped pretty quickly. Um and uh, yeah, so that was my first maybe conversation of race that was beyond like the usual like racial slurs being like thrown at me as a kid. So yeah, that was that was the first time I was very aware that I had a different view from, let's say, someone else. I mean, it's such a like I've run into this a couple of times where like, especially with all all the current like Black Lives Matter and protests going on, like realizing that c- certain people you knew back in the day are like kind of trash now like certain people i looked up to like like teachers even have like kind of shown their ass as like if not racist super conservative and like maybe pro-fascist maybe i don't know like i mean keep the this is what my friend keeps advising me she's like keep your list of favorites short (laughs) because they're gonna let you down and i thought mine was short enough but apparently not but you know (laughs) Oh, I forgot. I don't know if we can like go to the protest like my first because pump up the volume is actually a really, a really great film. (laughs) Uh, So pump up the volume came a year after Heather's, but it still like really got me into Christian Slater (laughs) because he was the heartthrob of teen rebellion that I really needed, apparently. And um, so in pump up the volume, he's like this shortwave radio like host who uses like a voice modifier to like pretend he's a guy called like hard hairy hard on or something is this like that. the pirate radio movie <laughs> yeah 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 okay yeah yeah i've and seen so, it on tv but I yes didn't, and yeah. and it, <laughs> well i need to find out if it's streaming somewhere uh there were definitely some problems with it but i do remember that at some point he was encouraging, you know, the free speech and students to speak out and also the stuff to the point where the FCC and the cops were trying to shut him down. So he had to get in a Jeep so they couldn't triangulate, you know, where he was and his, and his like love interest ends up driving the Jeep. And, uh, and at the end he ends up like the voice modifier, like, like breaks. And so he, he's stripped bare and it's like his, like, so to speak. And, uh, his, so it's just him and it's like uh, him leading this sort of like teen rebellion um, protest. Um, and, and and that really sort of like lit up something in me. And it wasn't just because of him, but I liked the idea. I remember of kind of like fighting the power of like whoever is trying to silence you. Yeah. Um, and that was the closest I got to protest movies, I think. And so I noticed that there's a through line with a lot of the teen movies I liked as a kid were like these these rebellion ones where kids are taking over from adults and um denying like what they've been taught i mean i feel like that was a lot of like 80s kids movies was like that goonies was like that um 
Yeah, they were kind of taking their own uh, fate into their own hands in some way because they weren't just kowtowing and deciding like and giving up like some of the adults were. Yeah. I mean, E.T. was that too, right? Um, in a certain certain extent. And Oh, E.T. scared the shit out of me. <laughs> to this day, I've not seen it in its entirety because they just get like... I just I just remember how scared I was as a kid. So no, thank you. Love the ride, though. Uh. <laughs> um, I will say that, um, and I know this is like it's. I don't know if it's embarrassing for me, but like you know, everyone has pop culture gaps, and Spike Lee is actually one of my pop culture gaps because I don't think I've seen any Spike Lee movie like, ever. Not even like Black Klansman. I haven't seen that yet. Well, you get your chance on Netflix when The Five Bloods is... That comes out tonight, <laughs> out. right? It should be out right. tonight. Yeah. So it should be out by the time this podcast is... <laughs> yeah, which uh, is like, yeah, Black veterans in uh, yeah. Vietnam War. So that will be very fascinating for me to check out. Yeah. He also did the series that's also on Netflix um, that's based on uh, his his original movie. What's it called now? Oh my god, she's got to have it. Yeah, so it, it he made it into a series, and I think it's only two seasons, um, and very well worth checking out. I think some people found it somewhat cringy, but I think it's very interesting and important the way he positions stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I think everything he does has some element of rebellion and expression and stuff like that. So I I I think it wasn't quite a mistake that I watched some of his films when I was a kid and didn't know quite what to do with them, but you know they planted the seed. Yeah, I was trying to remember what was my like earliest impressions of like protest in the media. And to be honest, I don't remember. I don't think I've either I watched them and it didn't affect me or it's just I didn't watch any real ones until I was older. Well, I also have a theory about this. I have a theory that protests, protests are sexy, but the context of which protests happen and the real work of story of like activism and organizing and you know the push for human civil rights is not actually very sexy so it's actually hard to portray it in a cinematic version sometimes so i think that's why i mean ava was obviously able to do that with something like selma and there have been movies like i actually don't know if gandhi has like protest scenes in it but you know obviously gandhi is very well known as a public figure for his protest, though he is also problematic. <laughs> Again, don't have heroes. I mean, I feel like, so the common thread between those two movies is the protest is a set piece, right? It's to show how these heroes or these hero figures are either leading mm-hmm. or suffering. It's um not torture porn, but it's like, what's like the... It's it's meant to invoke like check out how shitty people are treating these people, which work. I mean, that's why that's how this movement right now is spreading because we're seeing we're seeing not like just one police department in one city like being brutal. We're seeing every police department in every city in every town and, and we're seeing firsthand yeah. like firsthand account. It is which is I think I mean definitely new to our generation, right? Yeah. Like actually getting like primary sources on these on these Yeah. On, on what's yeah. happening. It's, uh, I think it's actually been an interesting thing because citizen, I guess we can call it citizen journalism, which has been showing a lot of the things that, let's say, even the mainstream media may not necessarily be privy to or deciding to show, uh, has been very important to show like what the protests actually have been. Yeah. And 
I feel like so I was thinking about this where it's like our like conceptualization of protests have always been around like certain heroes, Martin Luther King Jr., um, Malcolm X, Gandhi. Um, whereas right now it feels like everyone's coalescing, like the protests right now, like there's no one like hero figure, quote unquote, to identify with. It's kind of people are coalescing around ideas. And I think that's something that's really different about this iteration. Who knows who will be galvanized to become the heroes and like when they write history books about these days. But like, I feel like going back to your theory, Jess, it's like those protest movies are still about like the heroes, right? The good protagonists. Yeah. yeah. Because, and I think that's, I understand why that happens for movie purposes and storytelling purposes. You know, none of us were alive then. And I think we can do all the research we want, but obviously research is also framed in a certain way or like, you know, how people write about things is framed in a certain way. So like we were not there to personally experience, you know, the the civil rights movements in the sixties or like, these other movements for like independence throughout history. I I do wonder if it was very much also, you know, I mean, obviously it's still the idea and it's the leader personifies a certain idea or a certain approach to how to solve a problem. But, you know, that we know for a fact, there were so many people working on the ground. You know, it wasn't just like Martin Luther King just deciding he was going (laughs) to protest against and march for, for more rights, you know, for black Americans, you know, like, there's obviously a whole network, you know, the, we, it's the same, we see the same thing with stuff like Rosa Parks, right? Rosa Parks is kind of canonized as this figure and not saying she was not incredibly brave and important, but it wasn't like because Rosa Parks got arrested that they desegregated buses. It was, they were arrested, there was case and they boycotted for over a year, you know, and organized so they could successfully do a bus boycott that, eventually led to a certain change so it will be interesting to see how this movement in the future should we still exist (laughs) as a society up in the air um frame it frame it yeah i i'm i'm it will be interesting yeah and i mean the flip side of that is also because we have heroes we also have villains and i was thinking about a lot of these films like gandhi like selma even where obviously they're protesting against systemic issues but there's always a villain right it's always a guy that's like the antagonist, right? The one that's telling people to be bad. They're like the dude from Karate Kid, like sweep the leg, right? It's, I'm the one telling you to be bad, go be bad. And I feel like a lot of these, at least like from my childhood, a lot of these films or these pieces of media, it's always more of an indictment of like, like the bad apple um, analogy, right? It's like, it's a certain person being bad within the system and not the system itself a lot of times. What I thought was funny was, I think it was Helen Rossner who then, was pointing out like everyone talking about bad apples keeps forgetting that like bad apples like spoil everything else around them <laughs> uh, and then wrote yeah. a whole thing on uh, wrote a whole thing on how bad apples work <laughs> and it was great yeah yeah so i guess um going off that i'm wondering because i feel like there's there's been a shift in like films about the civil rights movement films about protests films about even the relationship between american and, and black people recently that's been a lot more nuanced right we have films like like selma which take a more realistic look at martin luther king the character um, we have movies i just watched um, i am not your negro which is the um, documentary the sundance documentary about um, james baldwin and that was another interesting like 
and kind of depressed. Like it was beautiful because it's all like in James Walton's words and his his writings and his his voice. Um, but it was also very like a little depressing that like we're fighting the same battles seventy years later. You know, but like the conversation has shifted in the last couple of years. I think because there are more black filmmakers too, right? Because I think like back in um, Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee was probably one of the few like directors that were like helming films right and these days you do have more people of color um helming movies making decisions like ava duvernay like jordan peele and i think we're starting to see a shift in even the types of stories that we're telling and calling out the system for its past transgressions even this past week of every single person being dragged for their past racist uh, practices it will be interesting to see what the next batch of projects will look like yeah i hope you know, we continue to support and uplift just black directors and black writers telling their own stories. I I have a certain amount of rage when I see a project that has a um you know a diverse cast regardless of what back or what community the story is coming from. But then you see like the director's like a white dude and I'm like you, you couldn't find like a you couldn't find like a like just a director from like that community to tell the story whether like they're black or like asian or like we exist like very much we exist um and i do think you know I- i've seen a lot of these lists about like movies you should educate yourself like watch these movies to educate yourself like about like race and race in america okay any <laughs> any list that includes a help i'm right this list is fucking trash like get the yeah. fuck out of uh, here right? let me just say and i don't want to name names but like i was definitely pitched a list of movies that would vary about exactly that written by a white dude and it not only did it include it might include the help. I can't actually remember. Like, obviously, it included Get Out, but it also included Birth of a Nation. And I was just like, unless you are giving context, like real deep context about why Birth of a Nation should be on list, this list, this is not a list that you need to be watching to learn about like race relations. It's just, I was just like, that is the wrong list to be having. And so I was just like, this is something that I've brought up in most of the places I've worked, which is why I was like, because uh, I was like, yes, it, it, like, you can have a writer who doesn't, isn't the same race as, like, what they're writing about, but they actually need to know things. And that definitely came from a tone deaf place. And so I was like, I've always, if I, if possible, money wise, I would like to hire more, you know, people of color, you know, who are writers and um, and or let's say queer people to write about things like with my minuscule budget. I don't always get the chance, but um, but that's also why, like, we have to amplify the people who are creating these things, Um, because like I remember someone was even asking once, like even down to, well, why should I? Alison Bree's character on BoJack Horseman, who is Diane Wynn, why does it need to be voiced by an Asian actress? And because the voices aren't different. And I'm like, you're correct. The voices aren't necessarily different. However, the input that could be there is missing. Like, let's say someone wrote the script who is an Asian, an Asian actress might be able to be like, you know what? This is, doesn't ring true. And so there's so many little things like that that I think people forget. Um, and so we're used to talking about Asian 
you know, perspective on the show. And that definitely holds true for the Black perspective. And so that's why it's so important, especially now when everyone's minds are being blown <laughs> about like, what was really going on in America? Like, even even I have to say, like, yes, I was somewhat aware, not fully aware. Like, we have to own our own privilege and say that, like, yeah, we didn't feel it as deeply and and consistently every day as Black Americans do. And so, this is why it's super important. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I mean, even just the context of the economic opportunities, right? Like, how many Asian just using the BoJack example, how many Asian characters are there in animated shows that Asian actors get put up for? And how many times do Asian actors get to voice white characters? Like it doesn't ever go the other way, right? It never goes the other way, which is why I have a really big problem with that. And it's still happening. I think some shows that were kind of produced before this reckoning happened made some very dubious choices. And I think they're going to get reamed for it. Kind of rightfully so. So uh, I, I won't name the specific show, but I think it's like a pretty <laughs> egregious, like the main character is biracial and I, uh, yeah. did not choose a biracial actor to voice this character. And I'm like, really, guys? It's 2020. Yeah. There's and it's especially- not a dearth of biracial actors. I'm also very much pro voice acting because as far as like, you don't have to get a celebrity to do your voice acting. You can actually get a voice actor, you know? It's so wild, right? Like, okay, and I will go a little tangent, but I hate it when the voice is recognizable. So the new, like, especially, I mean, like, I've I've grew up with Disney movies and, you know, they're problematic in their own right, but the new Disney movies that are coming out when they have like a very known actor play the princess. I I can't watch Tangled. I mean, it's not that good of a movie in the first place. I I just hear Mandy Moore, who is my like in my like going back to my childhood is like I'm missing you like Candy (laughs) Mandy Moore you know sitting in front of the Volkswagen Beetle she will always be that to me I'm not going to bring up some of my other (laughs) pet peeves when it comes to animation but yes it can take you out of it yeah I mean just because you can't see them doesn't mean we don't notice yeah but I also think I hope going forward that Yes, these a lot of these works are important. A lot of these educational narrative films or documentaries are very important. It's kind of like the easiest way to communicate en masse to people and for them to really get it. I know a lot of people have been watching The 13th on Netflix and it's like blowing mm-hmm. their minds and it blew my mind and rightfully so. But like I also we also really just need films about like regular people of color, like regular black people regular like asian people just like living their fucking life and just dealing with problems that humans have as well like we need both of those we cannot just relegate like the next 10 years to like trauma porn or like um you know like trauma narratives or like look at look at how oppressed they are like that is also a terrible thing to do because you know, some of these other movies, I'm realizing like 2000 was really my sweet spot of formative content. <laughs> I guess I was like, was like very, I was fairly young and just starting to recognize like, like building my conscious world. But like one of my favorite movies period is Love and Basketball by Gina Prince Blythewood. Is that? I love rom-coms, right? Is that DiCaprio? Oh, yeah. Is that? Or 
No. No, it is no, no, Omar no, no. Epps and Sanaa Lathan. <laughs> it is an entirely black cast. It's about two. It's a rom-com about two uh, people who and their their relationship, their childhood sweethearts growing up and the relationship through love and basketball. Hence the name Love and Basketball. It's really just about two people. It's it's a rom-com. I, I when I was eight, I don't think I contextualized it as like a black movie. Um, it was just this really love, like, I just love this rom-com or this rom-drom, I guess, so much. Um, it's still one of my favorite movies, even though, like, the more I watch it, I was like, ooh, he, like, kind of sucks. Like, Omar <laughs> Earp's character kind of sucks. He did not bring a lot to this. Rela- he was a shitty boyfriend in college. Hopefully he changed. Um, nice. And, you know, it's like those movies and, like, the Cinderella's that are also, like, kind of just rounding out the picture and rounding out the portrayal of just the humanity of people <laughs> we need more of that for sure that's my thanks for coming to my we, TED talk but <laughs> when you do a I know we've always veered into rom-com talks because we're a fan of them but I think we should do a rom-com episode at some point we should we should do an episode oh, on just anything we want to be honest because this is, yeah. so, this and, is our and podcast and we can do whatever is, we yeah. want yeah <laughs> and I actually only I don't like rom-coms for the most part. I don't like rom-coms that are predominantly white people. There's some exceptions in the teen rom-com space, but like the the very popular ones that everyone loves, I have not watched because I just don't particularly care. Like it does not interest me. I cannot believe Billy Crystal as a romantic lead. Like you can (laughs) yell it from the rooftops and like bang your head and like try to, I I don't, I will never believe people love. I do not get that concept. People I do love that movie. I do love that movie, but it's not necessarily because that I find them a romantic couple. So that's yeah. So we should do a rom com episode. <laughs> yeah, I think we should talk about. Yeah, we can love pick our is like really up there for me. Yeah, we can pick our formative ones. <laughs> well, as we plan our rom com episode, I guess we can also start wrapping up our discussion. Um, I guess going back to talking about protests in media. It really does seem like there isn't much in terms of portrayals of what um, movements like Black Lives Matter right now um, really entail. And I think part of that is because protests and the way that protests and protesters are used in media typically see them as like an antagonistic force, right? Like a violent and unruly mob that that's more of like a challenge than a... Um, force for good. Yeah. And, and, and I definitely think because I was of course on next door, which I really shouldn't be (laughs) um, watching all the conversations go, there definitely is a automatic acceptance that protesting means violence and criminal behavior like looting and, and vandalism and where, you know, yes, some, some of them did and some of them didn't. And, but that's not the point of protesting. And so it, it definitely, even my understanding, I think of protesting has changed so much in these past few weeks. And I will go as further again, I have no hard evidence for this, but like, I bet you this is true. The people who are green lighting large studio movies do not want to see films where they are the villain. <laughs> and what this movement has taught me at least is that we are all in some ways, the villain, right? We are all complicit. It's, it's unavoidable being growing up in this society and the systems. It's unavoidable. It's, it's how you react to that. That is really 
that is what matters, right? So if you can learn from that and change from that. But, you know, as we've seen, as I've personally witnessed in the last two weeks, you make, you know, like the liberal, you know, even the liberals, the, the people who want to think they're good, the good people, the ones who, you know, voted for Obama would vote for him the third time if they could. <laughs> like they're also have a lot of internalized biases and racism to work through, but they don't know it. Right. So they're making Big these decisions. Spot not realizing how like if we were going to really do a really down to like the truth movie of shit like hey we're all complicit and you're part of the problem and doesn't matter it's the system that's complicit or the system that's like violent towards like black people like number one that's like they're going to be like oh that's a bummer that movie's not going to sell because nobody Mm -hmm. wants everyone wants to just stick their head in a hole and not confront this so why is anyone gonna pay money to see this kind of thing when they want to just watch you know something fun that'll take their mind off they want a popcorn movie right so it's like all these again like hollywood is also a system that's baked with white supremacy and we also have to recognize that so i mean hopefully they're starting to do the work i still think i <laughs> i have like just internal chats about my friends who are corporate and like the stuff their various companies are trying to do and it's it's like they're so trying so hard and still mm-hmm. so misguided right yeah i think so, uh, yeah. yeah i think the less is more now as as everyone definitely try but maybe say less <laughs> listen, <laughs> say less, right? listen yeah. more yeah read more listen uh, more yeah. everything more just not talk just like knowing your racist is like number step is step one. Knowing it is not the end of it. <laughs> then it's like you got to work to undo it. So that that's. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Let's I, I'll be interested to see kind of where this if we still exist as a as a. <laughs> you keep saying that a semblance of a nation state. I mean, we're sliding into fascism. I mean, we just had primaries in some states where there was very obvious voter suppression happening oh my God. i know so maybe, maybe we are the baddies this time around in this cycle i just i know you're canadian marvin you might have to like marry me and like take me across the border <laughs> like uh, uh. I, I think my partner is first in line for that sorry <laughs> is polygamy legal in canada i don't think so <laughs> damn it okay well i need to come up with another like adoption plan b yeah, you can adopt me. <gasps> yeah. Be my dad. You are a legally emancipated adult. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can still adopt me. Is that? I don't know how adoption works, to be honest. I think that should be another option. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you could still okay. adopt them. Okay. There, was, there was another interesting case about like this this gay couple who like ended up, one of them ended up adopting the other for like the legal rights because marriage wasn't an option. But that's another story. Yeah. <sighs> Okay. We can talk about this after. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Han, Jess, thank you so much for joining me again to talk pop culture and I guess some important shit. I guess we talked about important shit this time around. Yeah. I mean, pop culture is a reflection. It's a reflection of important shit. So Yeah. It definitely also informs, I think, a narrative because people are, it's the Trojan horse, right? It's the Trojan horse of pop culture. Yeah. Well, uh, Jess, if people want to follow your thoughts, where can they go? Uh, they can follow me on Just You Tweets, but it is all going to be Black Lives Matter content for the foreseeable future. And raccoons, I guess. I, I subscribe to a account called Raccoons Every Hour. So it's like that and Black Lives Matter. Oh, 
I subscribe to like Possum every hour or something. Anyway. Oh. So anyway, uh, this is Han. You can follow me at Hanonymous, H-A-N-H-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. And you can follow me at Marvin Yue. That's M-A-R-V-I-N-Y-U-E-H. You can follow the show at Good Pop Club and also subscribe to us on goodpop.club. Uh, for our 20 listeners, if you want to give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts, um, that would be helpful. And, you know, prove to us that you're real because I'll believe it when I see it. Um, no, they're all Russian bots. <laughs> I can only afford 20 um, on, my, on my budget. Um, this has been Good Pop. The Culture Club. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Kathy, Kim, Steve, what's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-cup coffee pots, because you know they're bad for the environment? Uh, no. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It, it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So... Are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean drama podcast at koreandramapod.com. Kaja! Am I going to see sauna towel buns?